I'm starting a new sermon series today, uh, which I'm going to be on for the next few weeks. And this sermon series is entitled Lessons in the Life of the Early Church. Lessons in the Life of the Early Church. What can we learn from the early church where everything was on the line? Everything was on the line. They were just one moment to moment away from being crucified and being murdered and persecuted. And yet look at how they lived and how they spread the gospel. What can we learn from them? And so we're going to focus on the lives of those saints in that early period to see how they impacted a lost world uh, because there's much to learn. Remember that at that very beginning, at the time that Pentecost came down, there were fewer than 150 people who would have been considered part of that first church. There were 120 in the upper room. Uh, and so that really would have been the first church. How would they speak to a lost world in the face of the crucifixion of their leader? How would they approach that? Uh, what kind of commitment to forcefulness and Jesus Christ did they have? And what can we learn uh, from that as we relate the truth about Jesus? And so immediately following Pentecost, uh, the early church came together in a powerful way. You know that they were up in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend upon them, uh, and it did descend upon them. And the putative leader of this early church was Peter. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 24, if you'll see it on the board, he delivers what I call the very first Christian sermon. This is the first Christian sermon. And he articulates what the church stands for. This is who we are. This is what this is about. This is what we stand for. Uh, it is a powerful speech that, that really emphasizes governance and divinity of Jesus Christ. And I can't think of anything more important for us today than the governance and divinity of Jesus Christ. If we stand for nothing else, we stand for that. You can take everything else away from us as a church, and you leave the foundation of Jesus Christ, and we are serving God in the way that he wants us to. Amen, church? And so let's look, let's read along with, with on the board in Acts 2, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, this is the same guy who about six weeks or eight weeks earlier fled uh, when Jesus was arrested and blasphemed him when they asked him if you were one of his disciples. I don't know him. I'm not part of him, even cursed. What happened? How did this guy now go from the upper room down to the streets of Jerusalem, which is now filled with thousands of people, and now sit there and indict them, indict them for the murder of Jesus Christ? Well, what you see here is this is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter presents the truth that Israel's long-awaited Messiah had come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so lesson number one, lesson number one in terms of understanding what this is in terms of the early church is Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus 
is the Messiah. Now, it's difficult for us to appreciate today how hard that message had to be and how disturbing it was to those people who were first century Jews. Uh, and they knew what they did. They understood what the Old Testament said. They knew that there was a time coming when, when God would bring a descendant of David to the throne. Uh, and we can find this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They understood the verses. They understood the scripture. They just didn't connect it to Jesus Christ. And so this would have been shocking news to this Jew Jewish audience. Less than two months earlier, uh, these people had executed Jesus Christ. And now his followers were making the same claim that Jesus did himself, that he was the son of God, that he was the Messiah. This would have been blasphemy. That's why they murdered Jesus. But by making this claim in the personage of Peter, uh, he showed boldness and courage that exemplified the first century church. And this demonstrates again the next lesson, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Peter was bold and unafraid. And that's why hope for this church, that you will all be bold and unafraid to spread the message of Jesus Christ to a world that's desperate to hear it. You can imagine how hard that had to be to go out to that Jewish audience that had executed Jesus just a few short weeks before. Now, knowing that his hearers would demand compelling evidence uh, for, for proving who Jesus was, Peter proceeds to provide it in this message. And he establishes Jesus' credentials by demonstrating that his life, his death, and his resurrection uh, were all proving him to be who he said he was. All of the miracles, all of the signs, the people that he raised from the dead, Lazarus himself, no other human being that walked in the world could ever do that but the Son of God. And then the greatest evidence, the greatest evidence, and that's lesson number three, is that Jesus said who he was. And the proof was that he walked out of a grave, walked out of a grave and was seen by 500 eyewitnesses. Mark it down. When you talk to people about who Jesus was, and if you have to under, underscore who he was, 500 eyewitnesses saw him walk out of a grave. God doesn't demand that you take anything for blind faith. God gives you a proposition, and then he supports it with evidence upon evidence upon evidence. Uh, and so this is an important message for you to understand. This was the first century church. And now the salvation that was being offered to Israel here uh, was there despite their unbelief uh, and their rejection, and it's a testament to the magnanimity of God himself, that God himself would forgive the very malefactors who would put Jesus on a cross and would murder him. That was the essence of forgiveness, that God would do this. Uh, and it is a testimony to the grace of God. And so Peter described that to this audience. Uh, and he said in lesson number four from the early church that God forgives your evil acts, even as you murdered Christ. This is called forgiveness and grace through salvation. Now, this is an important message for you to remember. That was the first century church speaking to people that had murdered Jesus Christ. 
And now you have the same responsibility today because really we all bear responsibility for putting Jesus on the cross. All of us have some sin that was involved for Jesus having to go to the cross. And so we have to give that message to a lost world but let them know that God has forgiven them. God will forgive them. All they have to do is repent and ask Christ to come into their lives. Uh, and so... Uh, the miracles you see that God performed through Jesus were a central part of who Jesus was. Uh, and Nicodemus, one of the chief rabbis, admitted that as well. If you look at John chapter 3, verse 2, G Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and that verse there says, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. That was a Jewish rabbi. No one could do the signs that you did unless God himself was with you. And so it should be no surprise that God, who supernaturally created the universe, decided to intersect that universe with Jesus Christ and come here and allow Jesus to do these miracles. And God performed those miracles through Jesus Christ himself. And so Peter argued that the miracles were done in your very midst. You saw them. You walked with them. You saw what he did. Uh, and then there's the next lesson that the early church gives us as it confronted that evil. Your rejection was not based on a lack of evidence, but hatred. Uh, you rejected him because of hatred, not because of a lack of evidence. Now, Jesus spoke on this issue as well, understanding the importance of the miracles as it testified to who he was. In John chapter 10, verse 37 to 38, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Even the most bitter enemies of Jesus did not deny his miracles yet their response was to plot his death. Can you imagine walking with God himself that they rejected him, rejected the miracles because they were filled with hatred, and yet God gave them the chance for salvation. That's the greatness of our God. That's the message that we as a church have to articulate to a lost world. And so then Peter describes the very events that led to the death of Christ and I want you to get this image in your mind as he descended from the upper room down to the streets of, of Jerusalem. And I was in that room where it was. And that, that descent is about 15 feet. And the streets of Jerusalem were maybe 10 feet wide. They were narrow, filled with hundreds of thousands of people. We know there were a million people in Jerusalem during Pentecost. And so G Peter then says this. And I want you to see the power of a man so filled with the Holy Spirit that he could say this in Acts 2, verse 23. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The very one whom God honored, they crucified. Can you imagine what that had to be like to hear that indictment? You, you, put him on the cross, the very one who God's deliberate plan was to deliver you. 
Uh, and so Peter is actually answering some of the objections that come out of the leadership of the Jewish community, which is, well, if he were God, why wouldn't he deliver himself from the cross? And you need to give that answer. And the answer was because he was meant to die on the cross. From the beginning of the creation of the universe, God created and planned this entire purpose. Jesus was meant to die on the cross. Now, that didn't mean that God was excusing the deliberate act of these malefactors. No, God doesn't do that. They still had to repent, but God can use evil to a, for a good purpose. And so he didn't remove the culpability of these people. They still had to come to repentance. And Jesus speaks of that very issue as well in, in Luke 22, verse 22. And Jesus said, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Lesson number six from the early church. The death of the Lord was not a defeat, but the will of God. Wicked men bear the responsibility, but God predetermined that it would be so, and that's how God works. Yes, Jesus would go to the cross because that's what God determined, but wicked men would still be responsible. And so Peter then outlines the power of the resurrection, and this is what we stand for as a church. We stand for the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we don't stand for this, we stand for nothing. And in Acts 2, verse 24, again, we're going to read it, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death could not hold Jesus. And likewise, when you accept Jesus and give him your heart and you repent, death cannot hold you. Cannot. And so we understand this, and this is a message that we're constrained to deliver to a lost world. And so, lesson number seven from the early church is, if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and accept salvation from God, you also will never die. Now, how did this first sermon work out? How did this first sermon work out? Well, I would say it worked out pretty well because the Bible tells us that over 3,000 people came to faith that day. 3,000 Jews came to faith. Can you imagine? Have you ever tried to deliver the gospel to one Jewish person? Have you tried? I've spent my whole life trying to do that, okay? Imagine 3,000 malefactors who were involved in the very crucifixion of Christ, and 3,000 of them come to faith on that day. Look at what they said in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Can you imagine the desperation? What shall we do as the Holy Spirit cut them to the heart? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is an extraordinary occurrence. 
an extraordinary occurrence on the very couple of weeks after Christ himself will be put to death. And you see the impact in that early church of commitment and service to God, of boldness and courage with the Holy Spirit motivating them. That's what I want to see for our church. That's what God wants from us. And so the most momentous question anyone can ask is this question. What must I do to be saved? This is the question. And you need to be able to provide that answer. What must I do to be saved? The wrong answer to that question can lead to eternal tragedy. Eternal tragedy. And Satan has made great efforts, great efforts to obfuscate this. In all kinds of churches across all kinds of denominational lines throughout the world. Uh, and each of these wrong answers is a perversion of the spiritual truth that you see being articulated here in the first century church. You know, the legalist will argue uh, that salvation comes through works, through righteousness, uh, and we know that that's absolutely, totally rejected by Paul in Romans 3, verse 20, where Paul says, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law never saved a single person. Not one. But it convicts us. It convicts us of our sin and the need for us to have a Savior. The moralist. You see, the moralist has a different answer about Jesus. He believes that as long as his good deeds outweigh his bad deeds... Uh, in God's scales, he will be all right for eternity. Well, let me give you God's uh, scoring sheet. Here it is. A hundred is a perfect score. Ninety-nine is an F. Have I made the point? Ninety-nine. But it was ninety-nine. That's an F. That's the perfection of God. And that's God's report card. Uh, and so we see, we see uh, that answer also in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God's, not by works, so that no one can boast. And look also at Romans 3, verse 12. All have turned away. They have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is not one good person walking in this world who doesn't need a savior. And that's the message that you need to convey to a lost world. And so some of Peter's audience would have argued for salvation based on Jewish heritage. We are the children of Israel. We are the chosen people. He took us out of Egypt. He gave us the promised land. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all our patriarchs. How can you say we're not being saved? Well, there's an answer to that as well. Uh, and this is what John the Baptist said, who was a Jew himself in Matthew 3, verse 9. He said, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. How about that? Don't tell me you're related to Abraham. Don't tell me you're related to Moses. God can take stones and turn them into the children of Israel. And so sadly, all of these aberrant views 
that I've just articulated for you have legions of followers. Uh, and unlike many false teachers that you will find even today throughout the world, uh, Peter gives the correct answer to the crowd on how to be saved. He wraps up his sermon with an appeal to his listeners in Acts 2, verse 37, where he says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And you see, that's the impact of the Holy Spirit. Conviction. What shall we do? We are desperate. What shall we do to be saved? And he said, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the God himself will call. What a powerful presentation with that. And so he continued to warn them in so many ways. Now, there was a reason why they were so anguished and filled with concern, and that is as follows. First, they realized now that they'd executed the Messiah. How about that? We executed the Messiah. Instead of welcoming him, they had rejected him. Uh, second, they, they recognized that they themselves did it. They couldn't put it on the Romans. They were the ones who manipulated the Romans and forced the Romans to do it. They had primary responsibility. This, pro this produced a deep an abiding sense of guilt. Uh, and, and then they could not imagine a greater sin than killing God himself, the Messiah. And then they had the fear, the overriding fear that God would have wrath upon them for what they did. Can you imagine what this had to be like as the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes down to them? They were undone and desperate desperate for salvation. So overwhelmed, you see, with incredible guilt and anguish, they asked what they needed to be saved. What did they need to do to be saved? Their state of mind perfectly in, in, uh, shows us how the convicted sinner needs to act, uh, how God expects us to act. And you know there's an Old Testament verse that leads this answer, and it's in Zechariah 13, verse 1. And it says there that the first step in the restoration of Israel is the conviction of sin. And the citation says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Only after true conviction, true conviction, can there be repentance. And when there's true repentance, then we can accept Jesus Christ as our Lord or Savior. And so an indictment for sin is a key part of coming to Jesus Christ, an indictment for sin. Now, in today's world, you'll go to churches all around the world, and you'll be going to hear kumbaya, bring out the marshmallows, uh, and, and Jesus loves you, and you're not going to hear the fact that you need to be indicted for sin. You have to ask for repentance. This is important, you see? You have to ask for repentance, and the reason for this is articulated in Hebrews 4, verse 12, where it says there that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the part. There is only one correct answer to be saved. Repent. 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 
Now, true repentance, let's talk about that because you don't hear that preached in churches anymore. True repentance involves more than the fear of consequences. True repentance dreads the consequence of sin itself, the fact that it's breaking the heart of God. Uh, and so genuine repentance forsakes sin, forsakes sin and turns in total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it is difficult for us today to grasp the enormity of what took place in the streets outside the upper room when 3,000 Jews came uh, to conviction and came to salvation. They were a fiercely nationalistic people. They had been suffering. They had been uh, dispersed throughout the, the world. Uh, and now Peter calls on them to embrace the very man that they executed. Uh, and, and, and Peter does not ask for secret disciples. Let's talk about that. You want to understand why he said repent and be baptized? It is because the act of baptism is your testimony to the world. You're no longer a secret disciple. You are now a public disciple. Being baptized, demonstrate to the world who you are as a, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so the order is clear in this message from Peter. Repentance is for forgiveness. It is the public sign of what has taken place in your heart. Uh, it is a step of obedience in believers. And then baptism follows. Uh, and I want to show you what I think is the best example of repentance I can find in the Bible. And I would ask you to think about this. Those of you who may have been involved in even being slandered, or lied about, or gossiped about. I want you to understand what God looks for as true repentance. And it's found in Luke chapter 19, verse 8. And it involves Zacchaeus when he comes to faith. And, this, and Zacchaeus was a despicable man. He was a, a tax collector and defrauded many. Look at what Zacchaeus said when he came face to face with Jesus Christ. When he embraced Christ as his Lord and Savior, look what he said. He says, Lord, this is Luke 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Four times the amount. What if I've defrauded? Well, let me tell you something. Character assassination is defrauding. Let's not minimize it. All right? Somebody whose character has been besmirched or gossiped or slandered, you have stolen from them just like you've stolen money from their bank account. Can I get an amen? Let's understand this. And so you see what Zacchaeus is saying. I will pay back four times. You don't do that in secret. You do it publicly. And that, you see, is the nature of repentance. That is the nature. The first century understood this, that repentance was the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we understand this is maybe invisible. The repentance might not be publicly seen. But then you see the fruits of repentance. And the fruits of repentance are visible. And we see sorrow, godly sorrow. And we see that uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. This isn't worldly sorrow. You're not being sorrowful because you've been uh, arrested. You're sorrowful because what you did to besmirch God himself. 
And that's why you're sorrowful. Look also at 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Look, don't make Jesus out to be a liar. Jesus is no liar. You have all committed sin. I have committed sin. Every single hour of the day, I am still a sinning machine until God puts dirt on me and I'm covered up, and then the sinning will stop. Do you understand? It's the nature of our flesh. It's the Adamic nature. And so even as we love the Lord and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, yes, we have to come to terms with this issue in our life. And this is what God is telling us. This was the lesson from the first century church. This is how these people articulated through boldness and courage what God had called them to do. Uh, And so we have to live just the way Zacchaeus lived, just the same way with the power of that message. Uh, look, salvation would not only bring them forgiveness, but they would also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that from that day forward, God would be part of their lives, that the Spirit of God would be in them. They would be convicted when they went and acted out of bounds, that they would have a greater understanding of the Bible. And when God's Word came to them, it would inspire them and raise them up. And every single one of you in this church has received that gift. And I believe that as I'm speaking to you right now in a message that is inspired by the Holy Spirit in your heart, you're going, yes, yes, amen, amen. And let's understand something. These people were warned that an ending was coming and the ending would not be good. And about 40 years after this particular date, really less than 40 years, by A.D. 70, Historians tell us that more than one million men, women, and children would be slain in Jerusalem by the Romans as they took apart that city, as they took apart the temple. Not one stone would be left upon the other. It would all be taken down, and the streets would be filled with blood to a depth of six inches. Can you imagine what this is like? But they were warned They were warned, and that's the job that God has given us today as we really copy the first century church. So commit yourself today, individually and collectively, to have this kind of position as a church, that when you leave here and walk out to the parking lot, that you will find someone that you can deliver this message to in the same way that Peter delivered it in that first century church. Father, let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you so much for the message that you've given us, Jesus. I pray that this message resonate with us, Lord. I pray that we have the courage and commitment to stand up for you, not to be secret disciples, but to be bold disciples who can stand up and articulate what you want us to see as we bring forth your word to a lost population. Lord, Bless our church. Bless our people. Protect them this week and bring them back next week, Lord, as we continue to study your word, as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.